The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. The Gospel of Luke chapter number 10 for our text reading here this morning. The Gospel of Luke chapter number 10. As I stated last week, we just recently finished up a series verse by verse going through the book written to the people of the Ephesians uh, there at the church of Ephesus. And so right now as we move through the summer, we're just taking some passages and we're working our way through them. Uh, kind of line upon line, precept upon precept. And so today, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 10, uh, visiting a very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, But my prayer this week has been that we will look at this passage through some very fresh eyes, all right? So though we're going to be reading a very familiar story, studying a very familiar passage of Scripture, I hope you're ready to kind of maybe view it a little bit differently uh, than maybe you would be uh, normally accustomed to. And, and normally I would read through the text before and then we would kind of talk through it. But just to kind of follow the pattern that I set last week, uh, we're just going to start kind of working our way through it. So this is a little different for me. Uh, not a whole lot of fanfare. We're just going to get right into the text and begin to move our way through. So we're going to be looking at the passage uh, that is common refer- commonly referred to as the Good Samaritan. And uh, I'm excited that this evening there will be no... Uh, formal Sunday evening gathering, but all of our connection group Bible studies, we're going to be out in the community, and many of the different groups are going to be working with nonprofit organizations. We're going to be working with uh, uh, different uh, people within our community, and we're excited to see somewhere between 15 and 20 community projects take place all across Fresno here uh, this evening. We're going to be with the Fresno Rescue Mission, uh, Pavarello House. We'll be working with the pregnancy centers. Uh, we've got other folks working with the Ronald McDonald House, as well as many of the retirement villages, and so I'm really excited about what God's going to use this church to do uh, throughout the course today. So in light of that, I thought we'd spend some time uh, taking a fresh look at a very familiar passage, all right? And so we're going to just start right here, Luke chapter number 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 25, and we are just going to march our way through uh, the gospel of Luke today, and I'm just going to stop, we're going to talk, and uh, hopefully as we kind of move through it at the end, I'll bring through, I'll bring up a couple of uh, observations, and then we'll be on our way. The Bible says in the Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter number 10, and verse number 25, all right? It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Now, let's just pause it there for a moment. When you and I in the 21st century hear the word lawyer, it conjures up some very specific kind of uh, perspectives. And I know we've got some attorneys here even today. And in our modern kind of world, when we think of lawyer, we think of someone who's an expert in the laws of government, all right? And that's kind of where our minds would go. This is somebody who kind of knows the laws, know how the laws work. And so when we read a word like this in our Bible, it kind of conjures up this kind of ideology. And yet the reality is here, as it refers to a lawyer here, this man would have been a lawyer. He would have been an expert in the law in this day, in this age, and in this context. So what does that mean? It means that this man was an expert in the law of what? The law of Moses. 
All right, he would have been uh, an expert when it came to the Torah, those uh, 613 laws found in the early portions of the Old Testament. And so, therefore, this, this lawyer of sorts, he would have been a religious leader. He would have been um, maybe what some would have referred to as priding himself in knowing all these details of the laws of Moses. So this is who this is. He is a uh, religious leader, probably a Jewish Pharisee that focused in on knowing the details of the laws of Moses, all right? Uh, Let's keep reading here. Verse number 25, the end of the verse. So this lawyer, he tempted him, speaking of Jesus, he tempted Jesus saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you're used to writing in your Bibles, I need you to underline this because this is literally the crux of this entire passage here. Now, you say, what do you mean this is the crux? Oftentimes, when we read this story that is referred to as the Good Samaritan, we insert ourselves as the protagonist. That is, we insert ourselves as the main role, the, the, the main character of this story. We see ourselves as the Good Samaritan. That's, that's what Jesus is teaching here, right? That we're supposed to go out into our communities and be Good Samaritans. And yet, the reality is, if you study hermeneutically this passage, this passage intrinsically is not teaching you to go out and be Good Samaritans. What? You say, what in the world are you talking about? This, this passage is not teaching me to go out there and be a good Samaritan? No, not primarily. That is not the primary interpretation of this particular passage. You say, what are you talking about? The entire story that Jesus is about to go into here in a few moments is in response to a very specific question by a very specific individual. What is the question? And we're going to see that in a moment. Notice what it says. The man says, what shall I do to what? Inherit eternal life. Who was it that was asking? It was a lawyer, this Pharisee. He was an expert in the law of Moses. He came from a religious framework that believed that you had to do the 613 laws in order to get eternal life, in order to get into heaven. So you've got to understand that this is the context, all right, in which Jesus is about to launch into this parable. Now, if the context would have been different, if it would have been, say, John or Peter a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus. And and as a believer, as a follower of Christ, maybe Peter would have said, hey, Jesus, how can we be better at loving people? And then Jesus ushered into this story, then the way we often interpret it would make perfect sense. But this is not a sanctificational question. This guy is not asking, how do we be better Christians? How do we be better disciples? How do we do better? This is not a sanctificational question. This does not have to do with spiritual maturity. Jesus is not answering a question in response to spiritual maturity. This is what we refer to in, in seminary as a soteriological question. Say, what's soteriology? Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. This man is asking a very specific question how do we get to heaven? How does one inherit eternal life? It is not a sanctificational question, and therefore Jesus' response is not a spiritual maturity sanctificational response. It is a soteriological response. It is a response about salvation. So now with those lens, we have to read this story, not 
How do I be better at serving people? How can I love people more? We have to read this through the lens in which Jesus was receiving the question in. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Not, how do you get better at helping people? This is a soteriological question, not a sanctificational, spiritual question. From this new vantage point, then, we have to ask ourselves a really big question. And that is this. Who is the Good Samaritan. This is interesting. Are we the protagonist of the story? Are we the starring roles of this story? Are we what this story is all about? Go out there and be gooder Samaritans. What is, what is this thing all about? Well, this man, this lawyer, this Pharisee, this expert in the law of Moses who understood the Torah, who believed from the bottom of his heart that if he could keep all the rules, if he could follow all the laws, that he would inherit eternal life. And Jesus now is going to respond. Now notice what it says here. This man tempted him. What's going on here? This man came to test Jesus' theology. He wanted to find out what Jesus believed about soteriology, about the doctrine of salvation, how one inherits eternal life. You see, this lawyer, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and other religious leaders, were constantly trying to discredit Jesus, were they not? How many times have you read in the scriptures where they were trying to trick Jesus into believing this or trick Jesus into believing that? And, and that's what's happening here. They, there was a motive behind this lawyer's apparent innocent question. He's trying to trip Jesus up. He, he wants everybody else to see that, that Jesus is not the religious leader that everybody believes him to be. So here Jesus is. We come to verse 26. And in Jesus' incredible wisdom... How many of you notice, you read, Jesus was just wise. He, he's cunning. He's, he's smart. He's, 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 he's more crafty than even this lawyer, this attorney, this expert in the law of Moses could be. And so Jesus, he, he says, I'll tell you what. Let me ask you a question. Doesn't even answer it. Jesus comes along and says unto him, verse 26, what is written in the law? He says, you're the expert. You're the lawyer in the law of Moses. How readest thou? Basically, he's saying to this man, you're an expert. What do you think? And that's what Jesus does. There's so much wisdom as he moves through this passage. Verse 27. And he, the lawyer, this religious leader, this Jewish Pharisee, answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, and with all of thy strength, and with all of thy mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay? Now, here's what Jesus is doing. He said to this man, let me ask you a question. You're the expert. You know the law. What do you think? And basically this man says, for all we kind of kind of sum it up, love God and obey the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. 
love God, and then obey the golden rule. That's how you inherit eternal life. This is, this is where it gets, this, is, this, is, this gets awesome. And Jesus said unto him, okay, you've answered right, do it, and you'll live. This is interesting. Now, let me think about this for a second. Basically, he's, <laughs> Jesus says, okay, great. Do it. You're the expert. What you just said, do it. Now, as we're going to find out in a moment, this, is, this gets really good, we're going to find out that this man is very much aware that he can't do what he's about to, what he just said, you have to do to inherit eternal life. We, we're going to get there in a moment, okay? This is, this is going to come full circle. But I want to just, I want to set some foundation here for just a moment. As you study the scriptures, you're going to find that the way to eternal life is not obeying the golden rule, okay? I hope this is not a shock to anybody here today, but you don't get your ticket to heaven by obeying the golden rule. That's not how we get eternal life. That's not how we get saved, all right? Jesus is doing something very specific. He's doing something very personal, very, uh, uh, very uh, important in this passage, all right? You say, where do you get this? Galatians chapter number 2, verse 16 says this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. You're going to see this all throughout the scriptures. Okay, this man says, I know what the law says. I can do it. We'll just, I just got to follow the law. We'll make it. Knowing this, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. How are we saved? How do we inherit eternal life? By putting our faith, our trust, and our belief in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, putting our trust in him, in his life, his perfect life, his death on our behalf, and then his resurrection. That's where it comes from, faith in Jesus Christ. Even and we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified just as if we've never sinned, just as if we always obeyed, just as if we were never a sinner, justified by what? Works? No. Justified by obeying the golden rule? No. Justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, this is important to understand the context of what we're, what we're going to read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 10. Now, basically, Jesus is coming along. He's, he's taking this guy on a journey. Jesus is wise. Jesus understands what's going on here. Jesus is going to take him literally through a version of the Roman's road. But before, how many of you, if you're trying to help other people understand how to know for sure heaven's their home, the first thing you got to do is you have to help them understand that they are a what? That they're a sinner. That they're broken before God. That they can't meet up to the works of the law. This is what Jesus is doing here in Luke chapter number 10 here. So, here we go on. We've got uh, verse number uh, 27 here. And he answering said, I'm sorry, we, we already got here. And he said, but he, verse 29 is where we're at. He says, but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, okay? Now, here's what gets interesting. And I need you to, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on for this if you're going to follow the train of thought and the logic here. Jesus is doing with this man, this Pharisee, this lawyer, this attorney, this religious leader, he is doing what he often did throughout of his ministry. And he was trying to help these people who believed in the law as the way to inherit eternal life. He was going to use their very laws to crush them with. And he does this all throughout the scriptures. How many of you remember the story of the rich man? Jesus goes to the rich man, the 
I want to inherit eternal life. And Jesus gives him the law. And the guy's like, I can do that. Yeah, I've got it. I'm good. He's like, I, yeah, you know, obey the Ten Commandments. I've got it. Well, we understand that that's not how you inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, then he looks at him and says, he takes the very thing that's most important to him, that which he's placing his dependence and his trust on, those finances, and he literally crushes them under the weight of this perfect law. And he says, go sell all that the house and give it to the poor. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that how you get to heaven? If, if you were to do it, you get to heaven by selling everything I give it? No. Here's what Jesus did, was doing in that case. Here's what he's doing in this case. He is using their very laws. And he is bearing down the full weight of their laws until the rich man and this lawyer and these people are just crushed by it. He does this again uh, on, an, maybe you've heard of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? You go to the Sermon on the Mount here, and he says to them uh, as he's going through, he says, you've heard it said. How, how many of you know you're following along with this? You've heard it said, you know, thou shalt not kill. But I say, what? If you're angry, wow, he just, he raises the bar. Man, he makes it even more intense. Whoa, I, I, could, I, I, I felt like I could handle the law when it was just about murdering. But he says, no, if you're angry with a brother, you literally are committing murder in your heart. And boom, he starts bearing down the law. You thought you could do it. You don't, you, you don't understand. Then he goes further. Uh, you've heard it said not to commit adultery. And Jesus comes along and he says, but huh, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Boom, he lays down the hammer again. He's trying to crush these people on the Sermon on the Mount, helping them realize you, you think that you can attain to these laws. You think if you can dot your I's and cross your T's and walk your walk and talk your talk, that you're going to make it to heaven, that you're going to inherit eternal life. And Jesus comes along and he starts laying down the hammer. He starts making it weightier and heavier and more intense. And then he goes on and then he begins to keep preaching. And he comes along and he says, for I say unto you, this is Matthew 5, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you've got to do better than the scribes do. You've got to do better than the Pharisees do. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, he goes on to say, you shall no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And boom, here Jesus comes along and makes the weight of the law even heavier and he crushes them. But he doesn't stop there. You get to the end of Matthew chapter number 20 and he says, okay, that's not enough. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Boom, like, whoa, what just happened? The weight of the law came down and just crushed them. See, Jesus always was doing this with Pharisees. They're, little, they're self-righteous. You tell me what the law is, I'll do it. Tell me what I have to accomplish, I'll make it happen. And Jesus would get more intense and more intense and more intense until the weight of the law could no longer withstand. They could no longer stand under the weight and the heaviness of this law. And that is exactly what is taking place in Luke chapter number 10. He is bearing down the full weight of the law upon this man, this lawyer, this Pharisee. And this is why later on Jesus had to say, he says this in Matthew, think not that I am come to destroy the law. Notice this. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. He's saying the Old Testament, the laws, I'm not here to destroy them, but to fulfill it. He's saying I'm going to make the law so heavy 
And so weighty, I'm going to crush you with the hammer of the law where you feel like there's no way I can do this. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm your only hope. I am going to fulfill the law in your place. I am going to do what you could never do. But before he can say, I'm come to fulfill the law, he's crushing them. So no one self-righteous individual could stand there and say, I don't need a Messiah. You see, when you look face to face, God says, you want to inherit eternal life? Then be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. You say, well, that's a challenge. That's what that is. No. It's not a challenge. It's a death sentence. That's what it is. And so this is what Jesus did. Again, anytime he interacts with a self-righteous individual who believes that in their own ability and in their own strength, they can somehow attain to the letter of the law, Jesus comes in and totally crushes them. This is why Jesus confuses you. (laughs) Because you're like, then I see other passages and he's, he's loving and he's kind and what's going on? When an individual realizes that they're nothing and that they're broken and that they're not put together, There's no self-righteous to crush there. He can pour out grace and reveal himself to them for who he is, their only hope. But for any individual in this room or in these passages who somehow, deep inside their heart, still feel like they've got some amount of strength to attain unto God's perfect law, then every time he comes along and crushes them under the sledgehammer of his perfection. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You see, these lawyers, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they thought they had a really high view of the law. We have 16, 13 laws of Torah. We've got a high and lofty view of the law. There are people in the 21st century who think this too. Oh, I've got such a high view of the law. I've got such a high view of it. That's why I want things done this way and things done that way. It's because I have such a high view of God's laws. I'm going to tell you this. No. You actually, and these Pharisees actually didn't have a high enough view of the law. Because they still thought they could do it. And as long as you think that you can meet up to God's perfect standard of righteousness in and of yourself, you still have a small view of God's laws and God's perfection and God's holiness. It isn't until you see him, Isaiah 6, high and lifted up where your mouth cries, holy, 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 I am unclean and I am undone. There is nothing I can do before your holiness. It isn't until you are crushed by his standard of perfection that you are now in a place to experience his grace for in your weakness you're made strong made strong his strength is made perfect in weakness see jesus was constantly raising the bar of the law to where where people felt crushed by it rather than feeling self-righteous in their pitiful attempts to fulfill the law he does this every single time he engages a self-righteous individual and here's what jesus is doing we're gonna keep moving through this Jesus is beginning to lay the foundation for people to find their perfection, not in their performance. He wants you who is reading this passage, and he wanted this attorney, this lawyer, this Pharisee, he wanted to lay a foundation so they were not finding their perfection in what they accomplished. 
but they were finding their perfection in the finished performance of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That's what he's teaching here. You see, Jesus is laying the foundation for what he's going to do on the cross. He's crushing the self-righteous, those who pride themselves on their ability to attain. And deep down in their hearts, when they put their head on the pillow at night, they know they fall a little short. I know I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm, good. I'm, I'm better than these people, better than those people. And Jesus Christ comes and wants to literally crush all your self-righteous attempts at trying to fulfill the letter of the law. So here's this Jewish expert now. Let's get back to our story. He's starting to catch on to what Jesus is doing. Wait a second. This guy's smart. The Pharisee's thinking to himself. I think he's, I think he's like laying a trap. I don't know all that's going through his mind. He realizes Jesus is about to make this difficult, so he asks this question, verse 29. But he, this lawyer, willing to justify himself. Don't, let's stop there. What do you mean justify himself? You, here's literally, justify what? What, what, would the, what was this guy trying to justify? This expert in the law of Moses was wanting to justify his lack of love towards certain types of people. When he said, oh, how do I turn again eternal life? You love God and you love others as yourself. He knew deep down he had failed that. He knew. And so now he's trying to justify himself. He's, he's going he's gonna to look for a loophole here. Aren't we experts at this one? God gives a bar rather than just letting it crush us, boom, like it's humble us, uh, put us in a meek state, uh, we start looking for loopholes. And that's what's happening in this passage. You know, I'm not trying to make fun of lawyers, but in some degrees, they're, they're trained to look for extenuating circumstances that might in some way limit the extent of the law on a certain situation. And the lawyer knew that this command to love your neighbor as yourself was difficult, in fact, impossible to fulfill. He knew it in his own case, so he thought he had found a loophole, all right? He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to, he's trying to find a loophole here. He knows, wait a second, I gotta love others as myself. I, he knew he couldn't do it. Deep down, he knew he couldn't. He knew he wasn't gonna inherit eternal life, but he still was so self-righteous. No, I, I, there's gotta be a way I can do it. And so rather than just allowing the law to crush him, rather than allowing the law to humble him, he's gonna start looking for a loophole. And this is one of the things that self-righteous people often do. Rather than just humbling themselves, rather than just saying, I'm not perfect, they start looking for loopholes. Well, this is why she did this, and well, this is why I did that, and loopholes and justifications and excuses, and, and it's just like this little theological gymnastics dance, you know, that they start moving through, and in their own minds, it, it makes sense to them. It doesn't make sense to anybody else what they're thinking or what they're doing, but they've convinced themselves of it. Loopholes. Excuses. Rather than just saying, the law is crushing me, and I can't. Rather than trying to find my perfection in what Jesus has already done on my behalf, I'm looking to find perfection in my performance and what I do. And that's what's happening. Verse 29, the end of verse 29. Wanting to justify himself, he says unto Jesus, all right, Jesus. He's going to get into semantics here. Who's my neighbor then? Because he knew he loved a lot of people. But... You know, it, it, maybe, maybe there was a technicality that would get him. Maybe he could still inherit eternal life in his own abilities, in his own performance, 
with if, if he could figure this out. Now, now you can begin to see the wheels in this man's head turning. He's, a, he's an attorney. He's a lawyer. He's a thinker. He's looking, for this, he's looking for this loophole. He's looking for an excuse here. Wheels in his head. He, he knew very well he didn't love some people like himself. You say, what are you talking about? We're going to get there in just a moment. So he starts looking for a loophole. Now, let, let's pause for a moment, all right? I know this has been tough and weighty. Let me give you a little historical lesson here. These experts in the law of Moses, the law, the Torah, were, they, these guys were experts in finding loopholes. In fact, this week I did a little bit of research. And the religious leaders in this Jewish system, they had inherited a system that turned the obedience into an obstacle course. Like obedience to God, they literally, it was, it was 613 laws and then they added laws on top of it. Like they took those laws and, and because once people started fulfilling those laws, well, then they weren't better than everybody else. And so they started making more laws and different laws. And, and then when the, when the people around them started meeting those laws and those requirements, then they had to look for something else so they could be better than the other people around. They weren't content with obeying God. They wanted to be better than everybody around them. And this, this creeps into the church even today sometimes. I don't think it's here but it creeps into the church. It's not that people want to just obey God. They want to be better than everybody else. And so they start looking for these, you you meet somebody and you're like, wow, why why do you think that? Or what's going on there? And oftentimes, whether sometimes we realize it or not, there's this, this pride that wants to be better than somebody else. And so we make up our own rules. And we add things. Why? To help people? No, we just want to be perceived as being better. Not always the case, but sometimes. And that's what these religious leaders did. They, they would add laws to laws and they were strewn with prickly do's and don'ts that left the average person there in Jerusalem on a permanent guilt trip forever. Because there was no way the average person in Jerusalem could ever keep up with all these laws, let alone all the extra laws that these religious leaders were making up on top of those. I mean, they're just like, and, and so they're just literally, the people in Jerusalem, they just lived in a permanent state of guilt all the time. Um, under Jewish law on the Sabbath, uh, Friday night to Saturday night, you're not supposed to carry any of your possessions uh, off, your, off your private domain, like your home, your property. You couldn't take it out off your property. And so these Pharisees came up with this very a genius loophole. They called it Yerif. What was that? <laughs> they would take these sticks and tie strings to them. And they would put one of those strings on their property, and they'd take another set of, uh, another set of uh, 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 a stick and some string, and they would, like, literally from their property, they would make a little fence off their property. And they would say, we're still connected to our property. And literally, they'd go around town with these little sticks and these, and these strings. We're, we're still obeying the, the letter of the law. And this really happened. In fact, to some, in some of the Orthodox Jewish cultures, it still exists today in much more advanced ways. You can go to Jerusalem today, you'll see some of this stuff set up, and it's, it's loopholes. Um, no matter how cold it got, you were not allowed to light a fire on, you know, on, on certain, at certain times during certain seasons. And, it, you know, you weren't, you weren't supposed to do it, but <laughs> some of these Pharisees, they, they thought, well, if they could get a non-Jew to light the fire for them, then it wasn't wrong. 
they, they weren't obeying the spirit of it. They, they were looking for loopholes and technicalities. And, and these, these Pharisees were just experts at, they'd, they'd have laws and then they'd make more laws on top of it. And then with their laws, they'd find a loophole so they didn't actually have to do it. But they, they, they loaded down guilt on everybody who didn't. I can't even communi- articu- um, pronounce what this next one is called. Post-tonalis yidayim communication. I don't even know what that means. But you weren't supposed to talk between the time of washing for hamatzi and eating the bread and finishing the meal. So it was supposed to be a time of silence. And so one of the things that these Pharisees would do is, though they couldn't technically talk, they would use grunts. And if they, if they could keep their mouth closed the entire time, like some kind of ventriloquist, then they weren't actually talking. And so they'd sit around with their lips very still, and they would talk, and, the better, and, and, and if your lips didn't move, you were okay. Like, basically, the best ventriloquist wasn't actually singing. Like, what in the world? But you've got to understand the mindset of these guys. They had loopholes for everything, and that's what this guy's doing here. Who is my neighbor? Unfortunately, many of us will do the same things. Loophole this, loophole there, excuses here. Excuse. Just let the weight of the law crush you. Let it crush you. Let it remind you that you are weak and your strength is in him. That your, your identity is not anchored to your performance. That your identity is anchored to the performance of Jesus' finished work on the cross on your behalf. That will produce an authentic sanctification. An authentic spiritual maturity. Like no amounts of you know, just, you know, just kind of manipulating your way, excusing your way, looking for loopholes through you know, some particular set of laws. So... Instead of answering this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus begins to tell a story. He does this a lot, right? What are they called? Parables. And Jesus gets into this parable. What is, what is it in response to? What question? What must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. And so Jesus tells this story. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? Let's talk about this. Verse 30. And Jesus answering and said... A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've got a map here. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, you can see on your left, uh, they would literally, from Jerusalem, they'd make their way up to Jericho. This was about a 17-mile track. Uh, the priests were the highest class of the Levites. So when you talk about upper class in ancient Jerusalem, who were the upper class? Who were the rich? Who were the ones who were living on the northeast side of Fresno? Who were those people? These would have been these, these, would have been these priests. They were the upper echelon of society. They were the richest. They were the most esteemed. They were the most powerful. These, were the, these, they got, these guys were it, all right? And so, so for these guys, these priests, there was many of these priests. And then there were literally thousands of what they were called Levites who served at the lower levels doing the smaller menial tasks such as keeping the altar fire going, lighting the incense, singing in the temple choruses, and playing musical instruments. And so these priests and these Levites, they, 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 were, they were upper class for Jerusalem. And so as the upper class often do, they didn't want to live uh, there uh, in, you know, kind of a dense populated part of Jerusalem, so they moved out to the suburbs. <laughs> They moved up to Jerusalem, and most, many of these men, they would live up there 17 miles from Jerusalem, and that's where they lived. 
when they weren't on duty. Many of these priests and temple workers who lived in Jericho, which had become a, literally, if we could call it this way, a bedroom community of Jerusalem, they often traveled this road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So Jesus, is, he knows who he's talking to. That's what I'm trying to get to. He knows his audience. He knows who this story is for. This story is very specifically for a guy who's asking, how do you inherit eternal life? And this man's paradigm is, he understands the guy lives in Jericho. He's upper class. He understands, he thinks that the way to heaven is doing all these works and behaving in just a certain way. And if he has to find a loophole every once in a while, then he'll find a loophole. Jesus knows who he is talking to and he knows how to get to his heart. And that, that you got to understand this about the story or it will not make sense. So travel in those days could be hazardous, and, and there was a stretch between Jerusalem and Jericho that was often referred to as the way of blood. You say, why, why did they call that small stretch way of blood? Uh, because many people were robbed and often killed there. This was not just a story that Jesus was telling. He was using kind of the headline news of the day, what they might have read of in the front paper, and he's using illustrations of stuff that really happened, and he's writing a parable about this that really would have touched very close to home for this man. This would have been something he was very familiar with. Verse 30, the end of verse 30. And a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. He's probably on that portion, the way of blood, which stripped him of his raiment. They took his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Here's a man, certain man. Jesus doesn't necessarily say who this person is. Just leaves it vague. And thieves had come. The Bible says, The thief cometh but to kill and to destroy. These thieves came. This certain man was wounded. He was left for dead. Isn't that exactly what the enemy does to us? Before Christ, we were, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 2 verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The enemy had ravaged you. The enemy had literally left you for dead. That's what sin, that's what the flesh, that's what the enemy does to a life. It destroys that life. It strips you of everything that's valuable, everything that's important to you, and literally cast you to the side as if you're nothing. That's what the enemy does. That's what the thief does. Let's keep moving. And by chance, what happened to come a certain priest? Now, you can imagine as this man is listening to this story, he's catching on to what Jesus is talking about. A certain priest comes along. Oh, okay. The priest's going to save the day. (laughs) What does it say? A certain priest came that way, and when he saw him, he looked at him, he he addressed the situation, he passed by on the other side. (laughs) This is interesting. If we keep reading in verse 32, something, and likewise, a Levite, now the priest would have been the upper echelon, the Levite would have been, you know, kind of working with him, this Levite, what does it say here? Verse 32, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by the other side. You say, what's the implication of this story? This is huge. This is, this is awesome. Understand the context that we've already laid out. What is Jesus saying? 
What, what is the implications of this? Remember, this entire narrative is an allegory. It is a parable, a story, to help us understand the deeper spiritual teachings of Christ, not how to become a better Christian, per se. He'll teach about some of those things later. Right now, he's teaching about how to inherit eternal life, how to get saved, how to get to heaven, all right? That's the context of this thing. Now, what do the priests and the Levites represent in this story? They represent the law of Moses, Jesus is literally saying through this parable, here comes the law of Moses. The law of Moses looks, it sees the problem. It addresses what's going on here, but it passes by. Why? Because the law of Moses has no power to help those that are dead. The law of Moses, the law has no power to make it alive. It can see it, it can adjust, but it can't bring healing to that situation. Romans chapter number eight, verse three. I don't know if we've got this on the screens. Notice this. It says, for what the law could not do. What do you mean could not do? What, what can't the law do? The law can't cleanse. The law can't heal. The law can't mature. The law can't give you eternal life. Fulfilling the law can't do it because you can't do it. That's why Jesus came along and fulfilled it for you because you couldn't do it on your own. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. I don't know if we have this one on the screens here. It it might be there. It was weak through the flesh. I I guess it's not there. This is the rest of the verse. If you want to go there yourself, you can see Romans 8 verse 3. In that it was weak through the flesh, God sent his own son. Notice this. It goes on to say that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Can I say this? Your righteousness is not found in your performance. Your righteousness is found fully in the finished performance of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is teaching this parable and he's saying to them, hey, you're a Pharisee. You think that you're, you're, you're gonna be something because you dot your eyes, cross your T's, walk your walk, talk your talk. And Jesus says, that's not how one inherits eternal life. That is not how one gets justified. He says, you know what? The priests, the Levites, the law of Moses, it can't help you. It can't make you better. It is the righteousness of the law what he sent jesus to fulfill the righteousness of the law doing in our place what we could never do for ourselves this is why jesus came and lived a perfect life died taking the death you deserved rising from the dead proving he was god he was literally being the propitiation for your sin he was taking your place that is what what was going on here let's keep moving verse 32 I'm sorry, we we did that, no? Uh, Let me see this, verse 33. But, but a certain, what's the next word? Samaritan. Now, I'm telling you what, when Jesus uttered that name, I'm telling you what, this lawyer would have cringed to hear the name Samaritans. In fact, literally, these Pharisees, these Levites, They so hated the Samaritans, they wouldn't even utter their name. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't even call them Samaritan. To literally hear the word Samaritan was an insult to them. They hated the Samaritans. Why? Let me give you some background. This hatred began for these people in Jerusalem about 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ. You say, what took place? 
The Assyrians, 700 years before Jesus, came into Israel and literally conquered the Israelites and took the northern tribes captive. This is 700 years before Jesus. Assyrians come in, they conquer the land, and all of a sudden there they are. And their children live in the land, the children of these Assyrians and the children of these 10 northern tribes, and they start interbreeding, start marrying each other. And they create literally, a, we can call it a mixed breeds, half Jew, half Gentile. And so these full-blooded Jews, oh, this really chapped their hide. They didn't like these half-breeds. I mean, they, they were, I just don't know how else to say it. They were racist. Highly racist. They called them, they wouldn't even refer to them as Samaritans. They called them dogs. They needed to talk about a Samaritan. They called them dogs. Just these racial slurs that they would throw at them. They wouldn't even utter the name Samaritan. They hated them so much. Then, then about 500 BC, so 200 years goes by, there, the Samaritans have been raised up. 500 years BC, when the captivity with the Assyrians ended, God gave them victory. The uh, uh, Jews were building their temple in Jerusalem. Now the Samaritans come along and they say, hey, we see you're building a temple to our God. We want to be a part of this process. And the, the Jews were like, no, not, 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 that ain't going to happen. Get out of here. You half-breeds, you dogs. And so these Samaritans, they kind of pack up their bags, you know, and they start their own religion. <laughs> uh, Mount Gerizim. In fact, these Samaritans exist to this day. If you, if you go to Samaria, there are these. They, they follow the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Pentateuch, Samaritans do, and then they veer off from there. They're not quite like the Jews are. They, the Jews believe in the whole Old Testament. These Samaritans would have only believed in the first five, and the tension literally still exists in the year 2015. But notice what happens. This Samaritan, so here's this Levite. He's so mad that Jesus even says the word Samaritan, and ah, they hate the Samaritans. What does the Samaritan do in Jesus' story? Verse 33. And he journeyed, came where he, this man, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. It was the Samaritan who has compassion. This outsider. This one that everybody hated. Why is Jesus, this Jew, why is he using a Samaritan in the story? Jesus is trying to say something. Jesus is trying to say, hey, it's an outsider that helps. It's not one you're comfortable with, not one that you like, not one that you respect. That's the one who's, who's going to help this broken man. The Bible says he went to him. He bound up his wounds. Notice this. This is interesting. And he pours oil and wine throughout the entire word of God. Oil is always a picture of what? The Holy Spirit of God. So here's this outsider. This one is broken, been, been, been destroyed by the thief, by the enemy, crushed. The law can't help him. The priest can't help him. Can't bring him back to life. So this outsider comes along. This one that would have been at enmity with these Jews. They, they, they would have been totally contradictory. This outsider comes along and he pours oil, a picture of the Holy Spirit. Later on, Jesus would use the fruit of the vine to represent his blood, would he not, at that Last Supper. And so here's this outsider, and he begins to cleanse 
and heal and bring life to this one who was broken. How did he do it? With blood and with spirit. And he brings life. Put some hair on his donkey. Bible says in verse 34, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Um, some theologians have suggested that the inn in this parable represents the church. The outsider leaves for a while. But then in the next verse, notice what he says. When I come again, <laughs> we're going to settle all this, all we'll pay. Are you, are, you seeing, are you seeing what's... How do I inherit eternal life? That, that's what this is all about. What's going on here? Jesus is helping him understand the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. It, it's not the law that saves. It is going to be this coming Messiah. And with the oil and with the blood will bring cleansing and will bring healing. Verse 36. And then Jesus says, which now of these three thinkest thou was the neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? So this, now, now we're getting back. And Jesus is done telling the story. He looks at the lawyer once again. And he says, who's the neighbor? You answer your own question, sir. You're looking for a loophole here. You, you answer this question yourself. And I love this. This is, this is classic. And the lawyer says... He doesn't, he, he doesn't, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Notice this. So he resigns him to say, he that showed mercy. Doesn't even say Samaritan. Can't do it. Can't even bring, he, he's, he still is so enraged with pride and arrogant. He can't even bring him, it, just, it shows where his heart still is. He's not been crushed by the law. He's not been humbled by the law. He still thinks he's right. <laughs> and he's stubborn. Can't even say Samaritan. Oh, he, he, the one that showed the mercy, I guess. Verse 37. Then Jesus said unto him, looks him in the eyes. <laughs> says, go and do you likewise. And in that moment, the law of Christ would have come down and crushed that Pharisee like a sledgehammer. Love the outsider. The Samaritans that we have hated for 700 years. I couldn't do that if I wanted to. And Jesus is using the law to crush this man. To humble this man. To help him realize you're right. You can't do it. You have been so psychologically trained. Your experiences have so been veered. Your values and your motives and your worldviews and the way you see the world, your political agendas. He's, and Jesus literally, yeah, you're right. You can't do this. So don't run around like somehow you think you can keep the letter of the law, dotting your I's and crossing your T's because all you're really doing is making excuses and drawing up loopholes and laying guilt trips on everybody else around you because they're not doing something that you're not doing either. But through your lawyerly language, you've convinced people 
that you've got it and they don't. And Jesus comes to that like a sledgehammer and uses the law to absolutely crush them. And that's what Jesus does every time he meets a self-righteous individual that thinks in their own strength and in their own power they can attain unto God and be what they need to be. And God brings his law each and every time to crush us. And when we still think we stand, he crushes us, Lord. And if we still think we stand, he crushes us more until we say, uncle, remember that, guys? Uncle, I give, I surrender, and that's what's happening here. The story of the Good Samaritan is a very awesome story. The lawyer had asked what he needed to do in order to inherit eternal life, and Jesus' answer, in effect, through the use of this parable, says your love has to extend far beyond what humans are capable of doing. You have to do the impossible. You have to love your enemies. Now, how could anyone be expected to live up to the standards of the Samaritan in this story? If that's what God expects, if God expects us to do the impossible, if even this meticulous lawyer, this religious leader was doomed, what hope do we have? You see, Jesus had chosen his words carefully. He was showing that humans cannot meet the high standards and perfect requirements of the law. The only way we convince ourselves we are meeting the standards is by playing semantics, by looking for loopholes, by making excuses, by just even those who dedicate themselves Like these Pharisees, they fall short. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the only one to perfectly fulfill the law in its deepest intent. Jesus and Jesus alone is the good Samaritan. It is he. Jesus knew that there was nothing we could do. Jesus understand that it was him and him alone. So who is the good Samaritan? It's none other than Jesus Christ. When I and you, we were traveling down the road of life, We thought we were good. We had a little money in our pocket. We had a mission in our focus. We thought everything was good. And then from the distant comes the thief. That thief comes to steal. Comes to kill. That thief came to destroy. And before we knew it, we thought we were just going through life. We thought we were just having a good time. And then all of a sudden, before we realized it, we have been ravaged by sin. We've been just literally mutilated by the enemy. We're bloody. We're left for dead. We've all been there before. It's in our relationships. It's in our career. It's with our finances. We come to that place where our sin and temptation and the enemy, the flesh, and the world has just pummeled us. And there's no hope. Finally, we come to a place where we realize, I can't do this. And in that humble state, the law comes along. It looks. It shows us what the standard is but then cannot help. And we can try in that weak and dead and broken state, try to attain on the law and we will fail each and every time because we do not have the capacity to fulfill perfection. And then along came the good Samaritan in a little city called Bethlehem. God became flesh. The outsider entered into our world He came to those that were broken, to those that were hurting, to those who were dead. Dead in trespasses and sin. 
dead by the consequences of their choices, ridden by guilt, ridden by shame, ridden with brokenness, and the good Samaritan comes along and with his blood, he cleanses. And with his spirit, he breathes new life. He puts us up and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He gives us a local church that we can kind of come along and then he promises he's coming back again. Say, who is the good Samaritan? The good Samaritan is Jesus. You say, I thought I was supposed to be the good Samaritan. The goody two shoes. (laughs) The one who made everything better. I'm the protagonist. I'm the starring role. You know, I'm the hero of this story. No, Jesus is. I hate to bust your bubble. (laughs) But this story is not about you. It's not even about a better you in the future. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus doing for you what we could never do in and of ourselves. Jesus and only Jesus can rescue us from that way of blood. And he did it with his own blood. (laughs) Now, we're going to be concluding, concluding and then I'm done. So, there might be somebody sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, Oh, well, if the Good Samaritan, it's not about me. The Good Samaritan, that's Jesus? Then I guess I'm off the hook. I don't, whoo, thanks, Pastor, that's such a relief. I thought I had to do something good with my life. (laughs) But it's Jesus who does all the good stuff. I can do whatever I want. Until the Bible says, Jesus says, I have ascended, and I'm going to give you something, my spirit. I'm going to make you a new creation. I'm going to give you desires you didn't have before. I'm going to create in you values that did not exist before my spirit entered in. I'm going to give you a focus. I'm going to let you see things that you could not see when the spirit of God was not there. I'm going to do through you what you can't do on your own. And so you know what Jesus does? He gives us the spirit of the good Samaritan. And he puts that spirit inside of each and every one of you. Inside of you exists the spirit of that good Samaritan. He's alive in you. And the Bible tells us don't quench that spirit. The good Samaritan wants to do through you, through your members today, what he did in the parable 2,000 years ago. He wants to look for the broken and the hurting. And because he was willing to find you, that that you would yield to what he wants to now do through you. You have the spirit of the good Samaritan. The same spirit that showed us compassion now lives and breathes inside of us who are believers. And that same spirit of the good Samaritan that allowed compassion to flow to us now wants compassion to flow through us to those of us who are in Christ. In Christ, we are no longer at our core apathetic you may feel apathetic you may feel like you don't care you may feel like you don't want to do anything you may feel like you don't want to serve the hurting you might feel you don't want to engage the broken you might feel you don't want to get out of your comfort zone but that is not you anymore you are not your emotions you are not your thinking you are 
and you possess the spirit of the Good Samaritan. The real you wants to engage needs. The real you wants to desire to enter into those broken situations. That's what the real you wants, regardless of what emotions or thinking or anything else might attempt to tell you, because now you are a new creation. That is who you are. You say, but the... Some of those people out there in our community, they don't deserve my care. They don't deserve my compassion. Let me just remind you, you're not doing it for them. You're not doing it because of them. You are simply yielding to the spirit of the Good Samaritan that already wants to do it through you. Do you sense it? That is that spirit. The spirit of the Good Samaritan that found you broken that loves you at your very worst, that bound up your wounds, that gave to you when you least deserve it. It is that spirit that now resides in you and now wants to live his life through you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a church where everyone is yielding to that spirit of the Good Samaritan? See, while for the lawyer, this would have cr- that final statement, go and do you likewise, would have crushed him. I can't. To those of us who are in Christ, it's an invitation. Not a challenge. Because he actually empowers us. He gives us the strength and the grace to do it, not in and of ourselves, but Christ in us. It's not I, but Christ that liveth in me. I don't have to try. I don't have to, why? The Spirit of Christ. If I'll simply yield to Him, He can do it. Imagine the difference we could make in our community if we would simply yield to the Spirit of the Good Samaritan that already resides in our lives. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.